Welcome to the Terrorist Therapist Show on Renegade Talk Radio with your host, Dr. Carroll. Though you may not realize that the ongoing threat of terrorism is affecting your life and that of your loved ones. Each week, Dr. Carroll analyzes the hottest topics in terror and helps you and your family reach your dreams despite living in a time of terror. terrorists on the block, jury intimidators. Welcome to the Terrorist Therapist Show. I'm Dr. Carol, a psychiatrist and your terrorist therapist. We all know that I am talking today about the Derek Chauvin trial and the intimidation that the jurors suffered. Um, some of you are probably uh, thinking, wait a minute, wait, you may not agree with this at first, but, um, you know, I know there's a lot of controversy about the trial in general, but I'm going to talk to you about this because um, this, it's not really just about the trial. I mean, right now the trial has gotten a ton of media attention. It's been going on for a long time. Actually, you could say it's been uh, the issue or his death has gone on for over a year um, or about a year. Uh, but really there are implications for the future in terms of, is this going to be uh, a habit? Is this going to keep happening when there are trials, uh, particularly right now, trials of police who have white policemen or police officers who have um, used excessive force towards people of color? But it's not just about that. It could be any kind of, and it has been, other kinds of trials as well. So this is a very dangerous precedent. So I thought we should look at it more deeply than you probably have seen in, uh, in the media coverage that, um, you know, doesn't go into all of, the, all of the, the significance of it, really, you know, for the future. So here we go. Um, first of all, just for people in case any of you have been under, under a rock, which I don't think you have, um, then let me just say, um, this is, this is um, we're talking about the Derek Chauvin trial who was accused and, and actually uh, uh, convicted of uh, murder and manslaughter of George Floyd, a black man, um, the uh, Derek Chauvin um, was convicted of, uh, it was implied, of course, that he spent over nine minutes, nine and a half minutes kneeling on Floyd's neck last May, killing the 46-year-old Black man and sparking a whole year of protests. So um, what... <laughs> What is, what are some of the things, why am I saying that the jury was terrorized, basically? Um, they, these new terrorists intimidated the jury, terror, terrorized the jury, and this is something that we really have to think about for future trials uh, in terms of how we can prevent further 
terrorization of juries, jurors. Well, first of all, um, let's look at some of the things that happened during this trial and, um, and what impact they had. First of all, and these, these issues I'm gonna talk about, I'm gonna tell you about seven different things that really are issues for appeal because of how, um, how much they um, intimidated and affected the jury. So first of all, the first issue is that the judge, Judge Peter Cahill, didn't um, agree to a request by the defense, this was at the very beginning, didn't agree to a request by the defense to move the trial, to change the venue of the trial. And, and they left it in Minneapolis, which is and right near, right near where George Floyd was killed. And um, what, what effect did this have? Clearly, um, the jurors who had to keep walking by the area in front of the, all around the courthouse where there were protesters, where the protesters were getting amped up as it got closer, as the trial went on and it got closer to a verdict. And there were signs that they had to pass, the jurors had to pass every day that the city was preparing for more and worse protests. The courthouse was encircled by razor wire and guarded by armed troops. Storefront windows were boarded up and there were lots of other signs as well. But imagine how that feels to go walking into a courthouse where you're a juror, put yourself in the shoes of a juror for a minute and imagine what it feels like passing that and, and probably people staring at you. Well, they didn't know who the jurors were supposedly, um, but you know, just seeing walk, walking through that and realizing that you um, could have the impact of uh, if you didn't vote to to uh, to make um, for a verdict where Chauvin was guilty on all counts, that your city would likely blow up in a riot. The second mistake that the judge made was um, he didn't sequester the jury. It was bad enough that it still stayed in Minneapolis but he didn't sequester them, only for the last two days for deliberations. Third problem in terms of influence on the jury is that before, um, while the trial was going on and the judge refused to delay the trial, this might have been actually before the, before the trial started, it was somewhere at the beginning, there was the announcement of a $27 million settlement of Minneapolis paying the family, the Floyd family. Oh yes, this happened during jury selection. So, I mean, what does that tell you? That's telling the jurors that the city of Minneapolis thought that it was their fault, that it was the fault of someone who worked for them, notably a police officer, $27 million. You know, that was, um, that was not chicken feed. So that of course has an influence. Um, so that's implied guilt before the jurors even began hearing any evidence. Then there were remarks that the prosecutors made in closing arguments that said things like aspects of the defense case were nonsense. You're not really supposed to use words like that. By the way, just a reminder for those of you, I, I am um, talking about this not only in, as a terrorist therapist, but as um, 
a, a, an expert witness and forensic psychiatrist and jury consultant. I guess I should say that up front so you know that I um, have a lot of experience when it comes to juries. Uh, another problem is <coughs> the remarks made by Maxine Waters, and we'll get into that a little bit later. Also, while the trial was going on, and since the jury wasn't sequestered, they heard all about this, there was the shooting of a 20-year-old Black young man named Dante Wright in Minneapolis yet, <laughs> very close to the court and very close to where um, uh, Floyd died. And uh, he was shot by Kim Potter, who was a white police officer, he is a white, well, she, she is still white, but she's no longer a police officer. She was, she, well, she resigned, but she was certainly, she's now being charged. Um, I, with manslaughter, I believe. She, she's she's go, going to uh, face a trial. It seems that way at this point, things may change. Anyhow, Dante Wright, who is Dante Wright? He is, as I said, a 20 year old black um, young man. He had a baby face, you know, he looked very innocent, but when you, he was stopped for an air freshener, which of course is ridiculous, but, um, then he got out of the car and then he got back in the car and he wouldn't listen to the police and he was resisting arrest and all of that. And it turned out that it wasn't just the air freshener. He had a warrant out for his arrest, which showed that his baby face didn't quite tell the whole story. Um, he, he, he is alleged to have committed a crime of robbery or attempted robbery where he choked a woman, not to death, but he choked a woman at gunpoint to try to get her to give him her money. And this was a woman who had let him stay the night. There were, there were two women who had, um, were living in an apartment and uh, there was a party there and people left, you know, um, and then Dante and his friends said that they don't have a way to go home. So she let them stay. And to thank her <laughs> the next morning, he um, tried to choke her and get her money. Okay, and also uh, the jury heard during the case about Adam Toledo. He was killed by a white uh, police officer in Chicago. He was actually um, killed on March 29th and then the video was, um, the body cam video was released later. So this is seven reasons, seven things that the jury heard and saw that um, clearly would have had at least unconscious impacts, if not conscious particularly, and this is what I'm talking about today in particular, is um, the people who ha have already, I mean, we've, we've actually had uh, a year of violence on behalf of George Floyd. Cities all over the United States, not just Minneapolis, have been destroyed, have been, um, you know, it's, there were some peaceful protests, but a lot of them turned into violent riots a lot of police were killed or, or hurt, injured, um, a lot of looting and so on. So when, even though if the pe people in front of the courthouse weren't at the time that the jurors walked in, weren't uh, being particularly violent, the jurors knew um, what they were capable of and what they had been doing. And they knew what um, the riots were like after the Rodney King verdict, when, when they found the police officers uh, didn't give them a harsh enough 
penalty and found them, some of them acquitted some of them. Um, there were riots that exploded all over Los Angeles and in other places too, but primarily in Los Angeles, just like it would primarily have been in Minneapolis that there were riots. So um, there were, there have been other appeals when, um, when jurors felt pressured in the past um, and people have gotten retrials. For example, in uh, 1999, a U.S. appeals court vacated the um, the verdict of a white Detroit police officer named Larry Nevers, and he um, he was convicted of beating a black motorist to death. And um, in this case, they saw that at least one juror had learned that the National Guard was on standby in case Nevers was acquitted, in case the police officer was acquitted and violence ensued. So at least one juror knew this and that's why they um, gave, um, granted a retrial. Um, and the court said, when they granted this, the court cannot imagine a more prejudicial extraneous influence than that of a juror discovering that the city he or she resides in is bracing for a riot. It said, um, letting the conviction stand would send the wrong message that rights to an impartial jury do not extend to an obviously guilty defendant. There was another situation where an appeals court, this time in Florida, ordered a new trial for a plain clothed Hispanic officer. His name was William Lozano. He fatally shot a black motorist named Clement Lloyd. This was in 1989 and protests erupted in Miami. And in 1991, Miami, uh, at the trial in Miami, jurors convicted Lozano of manslaughter, but the appeals court overturned the conviction because they said that some jurors admitted they feared an acquittal would renew protests. And then in the new trial, the retrial in 1993, Lozano was acquitted, the police officer was acquitted. So there is precedent for granting retrials. Um, there could also be, if that was, if that there was going to be, if if the um, Derek Chauvin attorney, which will appeal, which I am sure he will, um, then then it could result in another trial, which of course would be really <laughs> hard for um, us to all go through. That you know really hard to um, to go through all the videos again and all of that. Um, but in order to get the trial, the Chauvin trial um, uh, reversed, you know, the conviction reversed either as a, for a retrial or perhaps they would settle on a plea deal, which would be more likely than having a retrial. But anyhow, what the attorneys have to do for Chauvin is to show proof that specific jurors heard the comments, uh, comments of Maxine Waters and heard all of the things or were affected by all of the things and were affected by all of the things that I've been just talking about. Um, so, you know, they'd have to get the jurors to admit that they were affected by these things. Now, um, well, I'll stop here for this. There's so much, <laughs> but I will stop here for this segment. 
and we'll take it up from here when we come back. And you might be some surprised to hear um, that there were, you know, terrorists. New well, there, there were terrorists back in the day, um, similar to what we have now in what I'm talking about, jury intimidators, and coming from a very ironic group. So stay tuned. Welcome back to the Terrorist Therapist Show. We're talking today about the new terrorists on the block, literally on the block, uh, jury intimidators. And I'm talking about the terrorists who were on the blocks surrounding the uh, courthouse where the trial of Derek Chauvin took place. And um, Alan Dershowitz, a very famous and very well-respected attorney, he has compared statements made by uh, Congresswoman Maxine Waters to uh, tactics used by the Ku Klux Klan to intimidate jury pools in the 1920s and 30s. Now you would not expect, <laughs> that's sort of ironic that it would be the Ku Klux Klan. Um, he said, quote, her message was clearly intended to get to the jury. If you acquit or you find the charge anything less than murder, we will burn down your buildings. We will burn down your businesses. We will attack you. That was her message. Um, you know, she said, we've got to get more confrontational. Uh, you know, she was basically telling people, you know, the protesters to become more violent. And that is so inappropriate. Forget about which trial it is or what race people were. That is just so inappropriate for a Congress person to, um, to uh, incite violence. So Dershowitz said that her remarks were an attempt to intimidate the jury. And he said, quote, it's borrowed precisely from the Ku Klux Klan of the 1930s and 1920s, when the Klan would march outside of courthouses and threaten all kinds of appraisals. So he's saying that uh, the judge should have granted a, a mistrial to the defense when she said what she did. Um, but then he made the point that the judge wouldn't grant a mistrial because then he'd be responsible for the riots that would ensue. Now, um, you may have heard the judge, he, he did make a statement about Maxine Waters. He did criticize her. Um, he was concerned about it, but he didn't do anything in terms of orders about it or changing anything about the trial. He said, the judge said, I wish elected officials would stop talking about this case, especially in a manner that is disrespectful to the rule of law and to the judicial branch and our function. If they want to give their opinions, they should do so in a manner that is consistent with their oath to the Constitution. And clearly, um, you know, not while the trial is going on and the jurors are not sequestered. I mean, this is like, duh. <laughs> uh, you know, I was very surprised and I have been actually talking a lot on television and radio about how the jury should have been sequestered so that to avoid this. I mean, yes, you know, and even to avoid having to walk past the people and the wires and the guards and all that surrounding the courthouse. There, there could have been a way to set up um, where they didn't have to do that, have to see that every day walking into court. Um, now, as you may know already, um, Derek Chauvin was acquitted of second degree murder and third degree murder and uh, second degree manslaughter. 
and he faces a, a, a maximum of 75 years in prison um, if he gets the maximum sentence for all of these counts. Um, an interesting thing, in case you're still not convinced about uh, jury intimidators, let me tell you about this alternate juror who has been talking in the media, maybe you saw her. Um, she has, she said, I didn't want to go through the rioting. She, she um, her name is Lisa Christensen, and she lives right in the area of town in Minneapolis. She was an alternate juror. She lives right in that area where the um, um, court is and where um, George Floyd was killed. Um, she said, let's see. She said that one night she could hardly make it home after testimony ended because of protesters blocking intersections. I mean, come on, you don't think that <laughs> at least unconsciously has an impact? Uh, she said she thought Chauvin, Chauvin was guilty, um, but we don't know that she would have voted for, you know, the extreme, um, the extreme charges that he was, uh, that the verdict came down as. She said that she and the other jurors didn't even share, this is how scared they all were about what could happen to them if people got to know who they were. Uh, she said that she and the other jurors didn't even share their real names and occupations with each other. And they were concerned about quote, saying too much, unquote. She said jur jury intimidation played a major part in the trial. She said, again, I didn't wanna go through the rioting. Um, you know, I mean, there is this proof. Now she was an alternate, so I don't know if her, you know, admitting that um, would help to get a retrial or, or get, um, get an appeal, um, but it is certainly possible. Um, kind of in the same, going along the same uh, way, in the same sense, <laughs> um, the a judge has ordered the names of jurors from the Chauvin trial to be sealed so that they're protected against unwanted publicity or harassment. So in other words, he's sealing them and he's leaving it up to the jurors themselves if they want to uh, identify themselves, which so far um, no one has that I have come, been able to come across other than this alternate juror. Um, you know, and she, I think she feels more able to do this because uh, she is, wasn't involved in, uh, the, in actually voting on the verdict. So now listen to this. The, um, you know, lest you think that the jurors' names don't need to be sealed or that uh, they're not in any danger, the um, lawyers uh, reported, the lawyers reported an influx, you know, this is probably both sides um, or perhaps more the defense attorneys, whatever, lawyers <laughs> reported that there were a lot of threatening emails that have come to, um, to them, to get to the jury, to the jury. We don't know if it's to the jury themselves. I mean, the juries isn't, the jurors aren't supposed to be receiving emails from people, but, um, uh, but let me see. So the judge said that the identities are going to be sealed for at least six months. And then, of course, if there is uh, more rioting and so on, they might be sealed for longer. Um, 
The, the lawyers involved in the trial said that they've received unprecedented levels of emails regarding this case, frequently of incendiary, inflammatory, or threatening nature. This is what the judge said. And so that's why he is protecting the jurors. Now, of course, you know that there is going to be at least one juror, um, if probably more, who are going to come out and write a book about this. You know this. But for now, the, at least the judge isn't going to be disclosing their name. Um, so he's um, going to be sentenced in, uh, in June. And before that, there is potentially going to be the trial or there is a trial set for the other three officers um, who have been accused um, of lesser uh, counts than Derek Chauvin. Um, so there, in other words, there are going to be points where, um, where there are going to be significant dates where there is likely to be, if not riots, then certainly protesters and particularly around the courthouse. I think that probably, I will be surprised if there's going to be a trial of the three other police officers given what they have experienced with this one, this first trial, um, I, I would think that those officers might well take plea deals, especially after they have seen what happened to the first police officer and how he got convicted of the worst um, charges, the most serious charges. Well, when we come back, we'll talk more about this, the idea of jury tampering, um, and the history of that, and what has what has happened since this trial, and what the what the um, significance is of the influence of these jury intimidators for future trials, whether it's a, a trial that has to do with race or a trial that has to do with any other issue, whether it's civil or criminal. The point is, if you could get enough people to um, to feel that the person should be um, convicted or not convicted, you know, either way, it could go either way to be found guilty of the harshest charges or the opposite to, to be found not guilty. So um, the point is that people, terrorists, people terrorizing jurors uh, should not be allowed to influence the judicial process. That is the seriousness of this. Well, stay tuned when we come back, we'll talk more about it and, um, uh, also, we'll see what uh, LeBron James had to do with this, Biden had to do with this, and some other cases of jury tampering. Welcome back to the Terrorist Therapist Show. We're talking today about new terrorists on the block, literally on the block, jury intimidators. And uh, I've just been talking to you about how um, at least an alternate has spoken out and has admitted that she was intimidated, particularly uh, by walking to the to and from the courthouse and being blocked by, you know, she talked about how she couldn't get out. Um, you know, just seeing the uh, precautions that strong precautions that the city was taking against riots because that's what they were expecting. If it, you know, probably if it had come in, if the verdict had come in as anything but guilty on all three charges, there, that would have been an excuse. Oh, you didn't find him guilty of a third degree manslaughter? I mean, second, what was this? Second degree manslaughter? Um, then, 
you know, the, I mean, whatever the charge was, um, if it wasn't the worst on all of the, on all, if he wasn't found guilty on all of them, that that would have been an excuse to um, to have to riot. So, one of the another person. Now, this this can't be used as an excuse to uh, a, a reason for an appeal because theoretically it was after the jury was sequestered during those last two days while they were deciding on the verdict. Um, and we had President Biden who weighed in. You know, again, it really just seems so inappropriate for people who have um, positions of influence, you know, like Maxine Waters, or of course the president, um, to give their opinions before a verdict has been decided upon. Now, again, theoretically they were sequestered, but you know, stranger things have happened than um, getting a note to the jury about the president. You know, it's one thing to just hear about, I don't know, somebody else saying something, but, um, and I'm not saying that it did happen. I have no inside knowledge that uh, President Biden's um, what he said got to the jury. I am not saying that, but he could have waited. <laughs> he could have waited another day, you know, um, until the verdict was out. And so what he did was um, he ignored the judge's request, first of all, that politicians not publicly discuss the trial. And instead he said on Tuesday that he had spoken with the family of George Floyd and that he is quote, praying the verdict is the right verdict. <laughs> hint, hint, the right verdict. Um, he said, it's overwhelming in my view. I wouldn't say that unless the jury was sequestered. I mean, really? Um, and so, and then also of course the Floyd family uh, announced to the media that the president had contacted them, but it really isn't the fault of the Floyd family. I mean, you know, that's too juicy to not tell the media that the president called you and wished you well. Um, so it's not the fault of the Floyd family, it's the fault of the president for not waiting an extra day. Um, now also getting back to uh, Maxine Waters, um, so some ironic little tidbit is that she requested an armed police escort to an anti-police protest in a Minneapolis suburb where she called for the riots. So um, if, not, if Chauvin isn't found guilty of murder. So, and she's part of this defund the police and all of that. So everybody should defund the police except for her, she wants an armed police escort, right? She should be protected. And, and you know, this is a serious um, aspect of this whole thing because Congress uh, senators and uh, representatives, people in Congress and other, other politicians, um, anybody who is talking, calling for defunding the police, they mean the police should be defunded for everybody else but they <laughs> want and expect to have a police escort, right? So, you know, that, think about that for the future. Um, if you want to think about people trying in politics, some people in politics, um, wanting to have all the power, it kind of goes along with not wanting anybody else to have guns, you know, wanting to uh, and disrespect the Second Amendment and take guns away from everybody else. I mean, it's just giving them more power and giving the people less power. 
Um, and again, some of the things that she said, she gave a whole speech. She said, we've got to get more confrontational. We've got to make sure that they know that we mean business. Uh, she encouraged rioters to stay on the street and get more active. Really? Okay, so let's talk about jury tampering. Jury tampering is the crime of attempting to unduly influence the composition of the jury or the decisions of the jury during the course of a trial. Now, there are a number of ways that this can be done. For example, before uh, a jury is seated, chosen, you can, um, it has happened that uh, people who try to tamper with the jury have attempted to discredit potential jurors to try to make sure that they're not gonna be selected for the ju jury. Now, I'm not saying that that happened in this case, but then um, also once jurors have been selected, they can be bribed or intimidated. And that's what I'm talking about here with the jury intimidators, the terrorists. So they can be bribed or intimidated to act in a certain manner while they are on duty. Then also there can be, and there has been, you know, this, this, uh, this is not just theoretical, uh, these things have happened. Um, another way that jury tampering occurs is by making unauthorized contact with them for the purpose of introducing prohibited outside information and then arguing for a mistrial. In other words, getting the information to at least one juror and then saying that there should be a mistrial because you know that this happened. Um, now, of course, if the jury is not sequestered, they get to see all this outside information on their own, which is what happened in the Chauvin uh, trial. Then um, another example is if someone tries to, and this has happened and I'll tell you about it, hand out pamphlets and flyers indicating the jurors have certain rights and obligations, including an obligation to vote their conscience, uh, not necessarily listening to the instructions that they're given by the judge. So here's an example of that. Um, this happened in 2015. Um, a jury found a man named Keith Wood guilty of passing out jurors' rights pamphlets. So Keith Wood um, was convicted of trying to influence a jury. Now, this had nothing to do with race. Um, he was charged with a felony and then uh, got dropped to a misdemeanor. Um, but anyhow, he was charged with a felony for handing, after he was handing out juror, juror rights pamphlets on the public sidewalk outside a courthouse in Michigan. And um, he tried to, he and his defense attorney tried to fight it saying that, you know, it's his first amendment rights. Uh, and he was after, asked afterwards, after the jury found him guilty of this jury tempering, um, he was asked how it makes him feel about his first amendment rights. And he said, oh, I don't feel like I have them. Um, and so he was passing out these flyers and this was um, when, the, when the jurors, well, now he said that he didn't ask anyone walking into the courthouse if they were a juror. In other words, he was just giving it to anybody and everybody who was walking into the courthouse. And he said that he stayed on the sidewalk, but he never blocked an area. And this is relatively calm compared to what was happening in Minneapolis. Um, and, but the prosecutor of course didn't like this because he said this pamphlet is designed to benefit a criminal defendant. 
Um, but the defense attorney for him said that the pamphlets are historical and generic, and they don't say anything about this specific case. Um, now, this was a case that had to do with property rights, um, nothing to do with race. It was, um, it was about this, this man had heard about this case where they were um, finding him guilty of um, something, doing something or other on his property and um, on this man's own property. And so this got um, the man who handed out the pamphlets very angry because he felt that people should have a right to, this was, um, this was trampling on the property owner's rights. And so that's why he handed out the pamphlets, uh, which tried to get the jurors to vote their conscience instead of listening to the judge. Okay, last but not least, um, you may have heard about this. You, well, you probably heard about Makia Bryant, the 16-year-old girl, Black girl in Ohio. She was in a foster home, and she, um, someone in that foster home, we, they called 911, and so police came, and um, she was attacking. She attacked two women, two girls or women with a knife and she was not stopping. She was like running around chasing them and trying to attack them, stab them with a knife. So when the police um, drove up, a policeman, a white policeman, she was black, a white policeman got out of her, out of his car. And um, he saw that she was just about to stab this um, young woman. And so he shot her and she died. And of course he's gonna be on trial undoubtedly, even though, I mean, it's a good thing that we have body cams on police officers for everybody, for the victims and the police. Anyhow, um, when this happened, this, this happened in Ohio, and LeBron James, who is a basketball player for the LA Lakers, tweeted, you're next. And he put this next to a photo of the officer who did the shooting, Nicholas Reardon, you're next. And he also put an hourglass emoji. So basically, he was putting a bounty on this police officer's head. He ultimately deleted it, but not until it had been seen by thousands of people, if not more, millions. Anyhow, uh, so what is the point of all this? Why am I talking about this? The point of this is that if we have, um, if we have jury intimidators terrorizing the jury, and again, I'm not just talking about race trials where race is an issue. I'm anything like a land, you know, so that example was about a property owner, but it is going to um, affect the results of trials from now on if this is allowed to go on. And, um, you know, it's kind of like people who talk about defunding the police. This is disempowering the judicial system. It's like people who want total lawlessness. And so, the judicial system is already being uh, disempowered, has already been disempowered in a number of ways, and it is going on a very bad spiral downwards. For example, uh, in a lot of places, there is no bail or reduced bail. Um, there are reduced sentences. People are not getting, um, this is happening certainly in Los Angeles and also in New York and undoubtedly other places as well. The sentences are not as long. 
people, uh, they're using the excuse of COVID to release all kinds of prisoners. Um, and so really, you know, both of those things between defunding the police and disempowering the judicial system by having terrorists, jury intimidators, intimidate jurors so that they vote uh, to convict or acquit according to what these intimidators want is really heading towards lawlessness and it needs to stop. Thank you for listening to the Terrorist Therapist Show. I'm Dr. Carol, your terrorist therapist. If you would like to find out more about terrorism from me, your terrorist therapist, visit my website, terroristtherapist.com. And if you're a parent or teacher and want to build stronger nests for your kids to become more resilient, check out my new award-winning book, Lions and Tigers and Terrorists, Oh My, How to Protect Your Child in a Time of Terror. It's the first and only book about terrorism for kids. You can find it wherever books are sold or directly from the publisher at terrorismforkids.com. Terrorism, the number four, kids.com. I'm Dr. Carol, your terrorist therapist. Thank you for listening to the Terrorist Therapist Show on Renegade Talk Radio with your host, Dr. Carol. We hope listening to the show has made you feel calmer, more resilient, and more able to reach your dreams despite living in a time of terror. You can also check out past shows on Renegade Talk Archives for more insights.